And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 73 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Monday, April 6th, 2015. Well, the week is starting off with a bang, folks. It's closing day for the Final Four in college basketball, where we're down to the Final Two, with Wisconsin facing off against Duke, go Badgers, and it's opening day for our national pastime here in the U.S. for baseballs, go Dodgers, go Indians. And of course, last night was the opening show of the final six episodes of Mad Men. No spoilers here, folks, but let's just say Don Draper is being Don Draper, and there's a whole lot of mustache involved this season. And finally, you can start your pre-orders this week for the Apple Watch. Get in line and hurry up and wait. So put all that together, and you've got a great tipping point for this week's show, where Joe and I will duke it out and badger you with our content marketing news knowledge. We'll throw an opening pitch of native advertising rants and raves, and we'll hit it out of the park and make you do the seventh inning stretch, drink a beer, and round the bases. We'll finish it off with some rants and raves that are going to make you swoon like a Don Draper fangirl, and polish it off with a this old marketing example that'll be the apple of your eye. So let's get to it, folks. Let's get to our game of content marketing. And for that, it's time for me to introduce my co-host, my friend, my colleague, and the home run king of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I have to say that I think you're stepping it up a notch on the intros. This is I, like, people you know, need to appreciate how much time and effort you put into those. Those are well, you know. So there was a we had a comment in one of our reviews that came privately that talked about a little bit about that, and so I said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and. Step it up a little bit here. You have. I'm totally impressed. The last couple, I don't know what you're drinking, but whatever it is, I want <laughs> a little a bit of, of coffee. I want a little bit of that. No, I am fantastic. <laughs> as uh, you and I were talking in pregame, uh, I just pulled myself out of the pool. I'm on vacation with the kids and the family, and uh, you know, of course, the show never ends. So our listeners come first, and I will that sacrifice right. myself. Pull myself out of the pool and uh, and do a little. This Pull old yourself marketing. out of that cocktail. This is this is just a tough life. That it's really rough. Oh my goodness! And we have to spend an hour talking about gibberish and content marketing <laughs> stuff. So no, I'm doing fantastic. It's great to you know as as everyone knows, you and I traveled half the globe uh, for the past few weeks, and it's good to spend yeah. some time with the boys and. And not uh, be a deadbeat dad anymore. So, <laughs> is, I don't think anybody would call you. A well, you know, dad. it's tough. That's the yeah. toughest part. You know, being on it the road hard. for almost three weeks. And although I got to tell you, FaceTime is a godsend, or Skype, or whatever. Oh right? I, the fact I, that oh, I can Skype, see their faces yeah, yeah. and talk to them exactly. It just makes such a difference. So. You know, it's funny. My my wife will tell me. So I'm the worst on the phone, right? I mean, it's like as soon as you get me on the phone, you can pretty much hear that I want to get off the phone. <laughs> Typical <And> so, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and, and my wife will will often call me out on this because on Skype, it's like it's totally easy, right? I don't know why. It's just easier for me, and I don't feel like getting off. And it'll be like 25 or 30 or 35 minutes into the conversation, she's like, "You know, you've been on the phone for like 35 minutes," and I'm like. Oh wow, that's really interesting. So she's like, maybe I should just Skype with you forever. <laughs> never, never call you. No, you say thirty-five minutes, honey. I gotta go. That's just, yeah, exactly. that's way too long. Like I got a ten-minute limit, <laughs> and we have hit it and surpassed it. So, all right, my friend, do we have any uh, news this we week? We do have a bit of news this week. Yes, in in addition to being a great big news week, um, sports-wise and Don Draper-wise, we had quite a few stories come out. Our lead story. Once again, here we go. Definition time. It seems like every time we turn around, somebody's saying something about content isn't marketing, marketing isn't content, content's not this, content marketing isn't that, whatever. The headline here comes to us courtesy of adweek.com, and the headline is, Marketing is Not About Content. A um, little bit of a clickbait headline, I believe, but uh, get your take on this, Joe, that says, Content marketing is not about content. It's about media. <laughs> I'm already all right. Anyway, in particular, it's about deciding to own your media channel. All right, I'm down with that. Rather than simply renting it by buying advertising, and then it goes on to uh, put your definition up, the CMI uh, definition up, and then says basically that's not wrong, but it's not precise. And then he goes on to, I think, put together an argument about why 
it needs to be more precise. What say you, Joe Pulitzi? You, I know you have a take on this. Well, you know, I had a, a little back and forth in the comments, and we're not that far off, but the problem that I initially had with it, and he goes on to to basically say the Content Marketing Institute definition is not precise enough and it needs a little bit of work. And of course, who we actually somebody sent this to us. Was it was it James yeah. Gardner who sent this to us? Who I believe, yes. Yeah, so James always is good about that stuff. If it's somebody else, we'll we'll get to it. But the um it, the first thing is it talks about in in his uh, this is Brian Del Monte, I think his name is, and he goes through what his definition should be of content marketing and says that it's about solving a customer acquisition problem. That's the first right. part. And I'm like, right off the bat, I'm like, well, you yeah. lost me because yeah. that's only one business challenge that you have that you right. can solve with content. And the whole thing about going through about saying that it's not content, and if you don't say it's content, you and I talked about this, then what is it? Is it right. is it a customer experience? Is it something right. around the product? I think you have to be specific to say you're creating a content experience and not some other experience. Now, I love the whole idea about owning the channel. I mean, anybody says, hey, own your own platforms and, and don't rent your channel. I love that. But there's lots of different flavors of content marketing. And, and I don't think that we... I think if we go out as the Content Marketing Institute and start saying that this is the way content marketing must be, we've already killed ourselves. We've killed our credibility because there's a lot of different ways that you can model a program and be successful because a lot of it has to do with the way your organization is set up that you can even get something done politically. It might, it, it, you might not be able to do that. You might, as you talk about many times in your master classes, you say sometimes you'll launch a blog, but you can't even get the, the IT folks or the web folks to give you a link on the site so that you can actually own the blog and actually uh, create subscriptions from it. We know another one, very large company that created a fantastic owned media experience, but wasn't allowed to. Uh, to get email addresses, get subscriptions, because that was the email group. It wasn't their group, and you're not allowed to touch email. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me! That's so, right. what is that organization right. going to do? They got to do. They got to do something different besides, in, you know, in quotes, own their own channel. I think that's the best way to go. But there's not just one way to get there. And that was sort of the conversation that we had. Is first off, it's more than customer acquisition. So you got to. You got. I mean. What about retention and loyalty, which has been the home for content marketing for 100 plus years? And the second thing is there's lots of different ways. And that's why native advertising as much ding, 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 as much as we are not huge fans of it, it's still part of the conversation because technically you can still create ongoing content and leveraging other people's platforms to try to steal an audience. It can be part of the plan. You don't want it to be the core of the plan, but it can be part of the plan. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, and so where he's talking about the owned media channel, I'm 100% in this guy's court. Where he lost me where is where, I mean, it's the third or fourth paragraph in where he says, content marketing is not about creating and distributing valuable, relevant content. If it were, then artists, cinematographers, etc. would be marketing experts. Well, yes, they are. That's the whole point, is that in today's world, that you can argue that every artist out there, I mean, musicians have learned this lesson in spades, right? Is that the content that they produce is but the marketing That's right. for the other experiences that they create, the products and services that they create. Their live shows, their tchotchkes, their t-shirts, their everything that they're doing from a product is like multiple revenue streams. That's what artists have ultimately learned in this whole disruption of digital is that if you're an artist, if you're a journalist, if you're a musician, if you're a photographer, it is your content, your relevant, valuable content that actually markets your services. And that's the real key here is is that businesses are becoming more like artists and cinematographers, etc., by having the capability to produce this valuable, relevant content at all variants of the funnel, not just acquisition, but loyalty, upsell, cross-sell, turning customers into evangelists and wanting them to share that experience with their friends and family. That's the entirety of what content marketing provides. It's that approach over everything else we're doing. And that's the real that's the real key here. So this is where I disagree that our, you know, you can argue that our definition may be a little too broad, but I don't 
argue that it's you know that it needs to be more precise around a particular aspect of the that, funnel. That's 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 the that's that's where that, I, that's where this guy. It's a great point about the artist. There's there's two small things that I want to leave with before we go on to the next one. One is talks about how it has nothing to do with storytelling, and the only thing I want to say is that talk to Lego about that. Right. That's right. Lego is driving major business by telling amazing stories. So let's just, you know, that's just one quick example of it. Yeah, the, I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say the 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 idea with storytelling. Yes, storytelling as a word, you know, because he brings up. I mean, we I actually that was my rant, like you know, I don't know, seven or eight shows ago. The the video that he brings up where he talks about storytelling is bullshit, and 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 I don't agree with that um, because I don't agree with how they define storytelling. Now I will. Th- fully cop to the fact that storytelling as a buzzword has gotten overused, abused, just like content marketing has been used and abused, etc. So the idea of storytelling and stories more broadly is so popular right now that it has lost a lot of its meaning. You know, it and 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 from that perspective, I, I totally agree with that. But you know, the idea of creating a valuable narrative that is separate and discreet from our product or service is such a valuable piece of what the content marketing approach is all about. You can't lose that bit. That's the, that, you know, whether it's a fictional narrative like what you're talking about with Lego, creating stories around that surround the universe of their products, or whether it's the story of your B2B business and how Indium can create wonderful value through narrative storytelling through 27 different blogs from their bloggers it, it, this is the core is that value that's that's really key here the last thing i'll say is there's an interesting example that he shares from neil patel i love what neil does neil is a regular yeah. contributor on uh, on sure. cmi's blog with kiss metrics goes through kiss you know says kiss metrics created a total of 47 in- infographs at this cost and spent this and within a two-year period generated 2 million visitors 41,000 backlinks blah 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 the whole thing and I'm reading that I'm like that's all fantastic but so what and Neil I would probably say the same thing how is it moving the business what is it doing are we getting subscribers what's the difference between a subscriber and a non-subscriber you know you ha- you can't just stop there so that my point right. is is that you can't just look at the likes the followers the backlinks the whatever I'm like those are all really good and they might mean amazing things for your content marketing program but in and of itself they're they're meaningless numbers to me that's exactly right. All right then. Well, we've badgered that one to death. Huh? See what I did there? <laughs> See, we were gonna just we were just gonna, just gonna spend two seconds on that one, and there we go, spending ten minutes. Well, I'm just usual. gonna work. I'm gonna work in. I'm gonna work in NCAA uh, stuff all 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 throughout this. Okay, so the next story. Don't change your mobile plans for Google. Uh, this one comes to us from Distilled.net, a site that I didn't know much about until uh, looking at this story, and it lo- opens up by saying. There's not long until Google rolls out this updated algorithm uh, on the 21st of April that's going to factor in mobile friendliness as a ranking signal. We heard a little bit about this during our trip to Sydney and Singapore from Arnie Keene, who talked a little bit about uh, the new Google algorithm that's coming out. And basically, it says it's got some people in the industry a little panicked. How is it going to affect your rankings in terms of your content? And if your site's not mobile ready, um, and what should we be doing to prepare, um, or should we be freaking out. And this video that then goes through um, some tips and tricks and and sort of advice on the likely impact of this uh, really talks through this. I thought this was a really good, informative video. What did you think? You know, it's just it's just good, solid advice. So, you know, just to just to go through the whole thing, if people aren't aware, I know we've talked about it on the show, but April 21st is the day that Google set to say, look, we're going to start to look at your site and whether or not, and your pages and whether or not they're mobile friendly. And we're going to rise those pages up in the rankings that are mobile friendly and the ones that aren't, you're, you're going to be in trouble. So Google never does this. They never come out this far in advance. Usually an algorithm change just happens right. and everybody's like, just scrambling. It, was, it happened on Monday, by the way. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? They are saying, look, this is important. And of course, they want the world to be on mobile and we're going that direction anyways. And they're just giving it a little kickstart here, like it needs any. We're saying, okay, great. 
you have to April 21st is the day. And there's been a lot of overreaction, as with most things that Google says, and people are trying to rush. And that's the whole point of the video is it's basically some sound advice, I think, from the folks at Distill that they say, look, don't overreact. Don't go out there and create half-hearted pages or updates that aren't correct. What, right. what they did say was Google is going to make um, uh, these updates on the fly as in they're going, you know, like let's say that your site is or your pages aren't mobile ready. Uh, the next time they crawl it and they are, great, you'll get credit for that. It's not like, you know, they're never going to be back and you're going to be banned with a penalty or something like that. So. The, you know, the advice that I would have, and there's a couple of advices that, that they, a piece of advice they give. But what I would say is that focus on your best performing pages. Like, don't go through, like, you use the one sample of the, what was it, 20,000 PDFs that somebody went <laughs> yeah, and updated right. and only four yes. were ever read. It, That's you right. know, don't focus on your whole site if nothing, you know, if people don't go to 100,000 pages. Start with your top 10, your top 20, your top 30 pages. Start there so you just don't have to hurt yourself and go through this whole process. They gave two really good pieces of advice. And we'll, of course, link these in the show notes that will be available on Saturday. But it goes through two tools that Google uses. One is they have a mobile-friendly tool. Uh, and, yeah. of course, we'll link to this, that you can go and test your site. And that's the first thing that they recommend, and I totally agree with that. And the second one is your Page Speed Insights tool. Both of these are Google tools. Like, if you're not sure whether or not your site is mobile-ready, it will tell you. You will know what to focus on. You don't have to guess. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this say, I don't know if my site is mobile-ready or not. I don't know if my pages are. What about my blog? What about my website? <laughs> so, great. Click open your iPhone and go to your website. Exactly. <laughs> and and actually, mo- in, and mobile mobile ready, according to Google, might be different than what you think is mobile ready. I mean, they have to render That's the right. page and, and more than what I know, CSS and Java and all this other stuff needs to work. But I guess, you know, just take some experts' advice. Go to this one. Check it out. Don't overreact. But it's good. If, if your webmaster or your SEO person doesn't know that this is coming, I would let them know. April 21st is the date. Are there such a thing as webmasters anymore? Is that is that like a thing still? You know, that's webmaster. a good question. If I totally dated myself, webmaster. There's got to be. Webmaster and webmasters. <laughs> there's got to be. There's got to be webmasters out there. Webmasters. They're probably playing I remember, Dungeons I, and Dragons I remember or something. Back in ni- <laughs> I remember back in 1999, I passed... The webmaster, you could get certified. You could become a certified webmaster. And I actually, it was this big, giant book. Um, the old people out in the audience will back me up on this. There was this giant, two-inch thick book that you had to read cover to cover, and then you had to take this test, and you would become a certified webmaster. And you could put that on your resume. What it, I, I, I should put that on my LinkedIn profile that I'm a certified webmaster. I bet my certification's probably out of date. So what, by okay, now. so just so I know, what is the name? For, is that is that uh, web services manager? Like, what's the name that replaced webmaster? Jedi of all gods? What I mean, like what? <laughs> what is it? Well, you know, keeper I think of got the a couple content. Here. I, the keeper of the content. I think the the key master, the key, the key, key master, master and, the, and the gatekeeper. Either yeah. one will Are suffice. You the key master. Now we're really dating ourselves. Although, isn't Ghostbusters three coming out sometime? It is with all women. Yeah, it's going to be all women. Oh, I'm looking forward to to that. Kristen Wiig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. We should move. There along. we go. Yes. Well, I will tell. You, I will say this. That you said something in the very beginning of this that I think is important, uh, which is it speaks to a, a a story that I tell during workshops and stuff about that company who had all those PDFs out. Out there, it's okay these days. If you know, for some reason, we've gotten into this locked mindset that websites only get bigger, and it's really okay if we go look at our websites and make them smaller. That's such right? a we, great you know, point. Oh, uh, you cannot you seen, cannot say that enough. I mean, because yeah. there are. I think that when you when you tell people, you know, nobody does this right, but every kind, and you know this, you come from the content management side yeah. of the house where you can set your content management system to say, oh, right, ping me in X date to see whether I need to to update this one, sunset it, and nobody wants to sunset their content because they believe that's that, right. oh my gosh, I can't kill a page. Long tail, long tail, long tail, you know, and, and somebody might visit it at some point. It's like, no, don't, stop, you know, the benefit you're going to get out of that one visitor per two years to that one orphaned page out there is n- far overweighed by the amount of time and effort that it's going to take to migrate that thing to the new CMS that you go deploy. It's okay to make websites smaller. Just it's it really is. It's okay. 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 
Now let's move okay. on. Our next article. This one is going to get both of us up in a little bit of a, 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 of a, of a titter, as it were. Um, and it comes to us courtesy of Ad Age. We're actually pairing these two articles together, one from Forbes and one from Ad Age. The first one from Ad Age is headlined, There is no more social media, just advertising. And this is a really interesting article. It starts out by saying 15 years ago, something I talk about a lot in in my talks and, and, and workshops. It talks about the provocative musings of Levine, Locke, Searles, and Weinberger. And so for those of you who don't know, those are the guys who wrote the Clue Train Manifesto, something I bring up in workshops all the time. And it basically says that for a while, it really felt like brands were beginning to embrace this whole online community thing, building communities through social channels and all of that. And basically, it comes to the conclusion of saying, let's call it what it is, social media marketing is now advertising. It's largely a media planning and buying exercise. Um, As I've said a few times um, in various talks of late, I believe that Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook are really the ABC, NBC, and CBS of our time. And so I firmly agree with that. Paired with this other article from Forbes that talks about why the future of online advertising looks a lot like television, which really goes into pretty good detail about why video and sort of the television look of advertising sort of seems to be the new trends here, speaking to how um, these uh, new TV-like video ads are really growing, and that it's basically now uh, taking up um, basically $2 of every $10 spent on advertising are now online ads, and then the fastest growing piece of that, of course, is video. So, what did you think? So let's maybe start with the social media thing. What did you take about this? Um, this this social media is no longer social media. I don't know. As I was reading this, it just hit me that as as much as content marketing and inbound and whatever you want to call it has been growing so much, you know, looks you know if it, if it was a stock, we'd all want to own it. At the same time, advertising is booming. I mean, I don't yeah. think people realize that everybody's, you know, t- you get a lot of those presentations where you can't, you know, you, you can't disrupt your audience anymore. Hey, we've got all kinds of disruption going on more than maybe ever before. And I think this is testament to the amount. I mean, all the, the both these articles cite numbers where there's just huge amounts of investment coming in uh, from larger brands. And I think that's the issue. And that's why we're seeing this and we're talking about so much advertising being pushed out on social media is because these brands are so impatient. They're so campaign driven. They don't focus on consistency in delivering their content on social media platforms. They're not on message. They're still trying to pitch, which basically they've given up. In a lot of cases, oh, okay, well, we're, we're done. I, and we know, of course, like we, we share the Cleveland Clinics example all the time on Facebook. If you create really valuable, relevant, compelling content on social channels, you can it can work for you. It just takes time, patience, and a lot of work to do that. And most brands don't do that. They, they just don't put in the time effort because it takes too long. Or they do both, right? Yes. Or, you know, they do they do both. I mean, this is the classic, you know, if we, if we go even back to the, you know, 10 years ago, right? So go back to 2005, 2004, before social media, you know, when we all had MySpace blinking GIFs looking at us. And, and um, the idea was, on search, speaking of search, is that you would you would work very hard on getting organic search, and the idea would be that it would sort of ultimately replace what you were buying. In other words, you would work really hard to get keywords and rank for organic keywords, and the theory was if you could rank really high for them and get on the first page, you would no longer have to buy that keyword. But of course, you did that. You worked really hard to rank for that, and you got to the first page, but you never gave up the paid space, right? You just took both spaces. So now you have an organic link and you have a paid link because you just don't give up that paid media budget. And I think you make such a great point here. Paid media ha- is in a heyday right now. Oh my I mean, we goodness! Are in, we are in a bit, you know, paid media. You know, whether you call it advertising or social media marketing, or you call it you know native advertising, the idea of paying for space on other people's properties is is really just huge right now. So it's, you know, I whether or not social media marketing is defined as basically a paid media play or not, and I'm sure those that are in social media marketing would object strenuously to that. Um, I don't, I don't really, that's not really my bailiwick, but, but uh, you know, I look at it and say, to be successful in social media, you've got to have some sort of paid component to it, I suspect. Oh, I, I think that 
it's not one or the other. And that's where whatever you see an article out there that says, oh, you got to go this direction or that. No, you, you, you should look at all of them. You should do your job right. as a marketer and look at all available options to connect with your customers and your audience in some way. So sometimes yeah. paid works really well. Sometimes that's the way to best reach your audience. Of course, that's a different message than ongoing content. The one thing about the uh, the television one, the, this is what I – here's my question. And I, I really think that this B-roll up in front of videos thing, I think this is a temporary thing. I don't think people are oh, going to yeah. – I mean, yeah, how long is that yeah. going to last before yeah. – I mean, really and, – and I think a lot of brands have done this really well where their advertising or the videos that they create – which could be could be thought of as more advertising driven video or, or uh, promotional videos. They, it, I think that the, the content just has to be that good. It just has That's to right. be that good. It just has to be a valuable experience in and of itself. And any of this, oh, we're going to disrupt ahead of the video. I think it's going to hurt the publisher, whoever has the real content that they want, as well as the person promoting it. I just don't think it's going to work because I think people are smarter. They know they can get the content somewhere else without a B-roll in front of it. I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you're starting to see that now, right? You're starting to see, you know, there, Geico did a really wonderful um, campaign um, here where they were putting, you know, so they know that basically YouTube, it's after five seconds, you can skip the ad. And what they did was they made the ad like, four seconds and then froze everybody it was a really wonderful creative expression of a, of a of an ad where you know the dog jumps up on the table and starts licking the you know and everybody freezes and of course and it makes you want to stick around and see what's going on because it's weird but the ad itself was quite literally five seconds long and so you're starting to see creative agencies figure out ways to put that up front video to sort of address that but i totally agree i think it's i, I think that's going to be you know, well, I, I've already started to see interstitial ads in the middle of videos, right? Especially longer form videos on YouTube. There's, you know, you can see it in the timeline. You can see that there's a little yellow bar, and you get an interstitial ad in the middle of that thing. Um, so I think you're going to start to see some of that. And you see in the article itself, it talks about how uh, Dick Costello from Twitter basically said that the ads will now make up about one in twenty tweets, which is about five percent, which quite frankly, is a little lighter, not a lot lighter, but a little lighter than you see basically the 30-second spots now on an hour-long program, you know, which is going to be about, you know, 10 10 minutes per hour of ads, which is, you know, a little more like 10%. But, you know, so it's, I think you're going to start to see sprinkling in of interstitial paid media into all of social and and the real question is and this is i think where it comes back right around to content marketing again is what we're starting to see is what is it that you're actually advertising right and in many cases it can be promotion of content promotion of our of our content or our experience and you know this is where we started getting into you know sort of the outbrains and taboulas and content discovery platforms that are out there as well as just regular paid campaigns that are advertising a content you know the pharma is huge in this right now there is such a big amount of money going in for pharma to create non-branded content experiences that are then getting promoted through traditional paid media across television and print where you're actually advertising a website, a non-branded website, or a book, or a, you know, a, a webinar program, or something like that. I think that's the real new financial here. services. That's too. Why, yeah, financial oh, yeah, services. Huge. It's huge, and I mean, we we could talk about a, a couple of, of recent examples, but for an older example, look at Fisher Investments. I look at them all the yeah, time. Where exactly. you have Ken Fisher, he writes the books. The books are promoted directly. I mean, he gets a New York Times page ad, and they put it in there. Then the books talk about the website, which is MarketMinder.com, which is a, an, a, a really impressive site where all the the experts within Fisher Investments talk about what's going on in the market. I mean, it's just very simple. It's not rocket science, yep. but they're actually That's using right. paid media to drive people to their content, which then, in essence, gets them signed up for services at Fisher. So, yeah, I don't know. This is crazy. Do you have anything more on the video portion of this one? I just, I think we're just in a temporary, well, think, you know, what, a temporary I, thing with this video because it, I. <laughs> The whole we, well, we we talked about I don't know I can't remember which master class it was but we were talking about video and we asked how many people actually put up consistent video like when they create video nobody does it 
They just right. throw up video whenever. There's no and the ones that are really successful, the ones that are doing the daily or the weekly, or you know, just like setting an appointment with your content for customers. That's what they're doing, and they're just we don't see a lot of that from any size brands doing that. And it's it just it's almost like they they thought video was different. It's different than blog content, or it's different than podcasts. It's like oh, we could just put a video on YouTube whenever, and people will find it if it's good. So yeah, it's well, it's harder. I mean, it's it's a lot harder. Right. I mean, it's because there's a linear aspect to it and because it needs to be edited and, it, and, and the editing of it is a, a, a more, uh, let's say, a, a rarer skill set, um, you know, because there's a technology aspect to it where you've got to actually have someone who's, you know, not only artistic and good at editing, but also can work the tools that are that are needed to edit video and produce it and light it. And, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a more produced uh, uh, you know, media form. And I think, you know, you're seeing it everywhere where video itself or moving pictures itself are becoming such a staple of what the web is becoming. And this is especially true as mobile sort of gets it off its, uh, gets on its legs. I think you're only going to see that increase and increase and increase. And so what, you know, it, let's say in the next two to three years, that sort of overload of blog related content i think gets replaced with an overload of video content and you know i was i mean i went and saw fascinatingly i went and saw um when we were young the movie when we were young um uh, over the weekend which is a pretty good movie the movie itself is has problems but the 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 interesting thing there it's ben stiller's new movie and 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 the guy from girls i can't remember his name um but the interesting thing is, is there's an older couple in their mid-40s and a younger couple in their mid-20s, and they have this discussion about how video and the capture of our lives has really redefined what it means to be a documentarian, right? What it, you know, because they're both documentary filmmakers, and they talk about, you know, it used to be that documentarians would basically create documentaries about real life, and now everybody's capturing their life in real life. And so the question becomes, what is real life? It's a, so not that is philosophical that is deep, here, but man, that's yeah, way too deep for this. So Monday, man, but the point on the, I mean, it's a great point, but the idea that I don't think the majority of brands know how much time and effort it takes to do consistent video series. I mean, yeah, like if you look exactly at, right. look, I mean, of course I got, kids and they watch like PewDiePie and Matthew Patrick at Game Theory and those, you know, like Matthew Patrick over at Game Theory, he's got four or five million followers now. He's been That's p- right. pumping out We every week he does a does a video on, you know, gaming and, and uh, his take on it and analytics. It's, it's, I think it's super interesting. But it takes him a hundred hours of team time to put each episode together. One hundred hours. Yeah. It, that's a lot of, t- but it's paid off. But there's sure. a lot of brands that just don't do that because I think there's sure. still this impression that social media, quote unquote, content uh, should should not cost you that much. That's right. That's right. And that, by the way, that hundred hours is a lot less. I know from experience is a lot less than what it takes, for example, to put out a weekly show like The Daily Show or a sitcom or you know any of those things. It's you know people always ask me. They're like, why does it cost like you know tens of millions of dollars to produce a sitcom and I'm like because it's expensive and hard and there's a lot of people that are involved yeah, every like every morning they get into that meeting in the morning what do you got 20 yeah, people in the exactly. war room talking about what's going to be on the show and they've been looking at stories all night and oh it's crazy yeah it's hard to do really quality content all right Moving on to our last story of the show, and this one is, you know, get your drinking glasses ready, folks. We're going to talk about native advertising a minute here. This was a really good article. It comes to us courtesy of Media Post, and the, it asks a question in the headline, what is a native revenue stack? And I thought this was interesting because mainly, Joe, I wanted to get your take on this coming from the business you come from, where it talks about how the search for new media business models is more complicated than ever with many publishers that are struggling to figure out how to monetize. And there's somewhere native advertising has become a big strategy. We've talked about this ad nauseum on this show. And we even had as our uh, our sponsor a couple of weeks ago where we had the guys from Relevant talking about, you know, how this was, you know, the, the idea of how marketers can sort of put together a strategy for where and how to buy native advertising. This says, cites a study that says that native advertising may grow to $21 billion in the next three years, up from eight this year. 
And so the question is, what does the revenue stack look like? And this blogger then goes on to basically explain his three elements of what he calls the native revenue stack, direct sponsored native advertising. We can go through these if we want direct brand-owned native advertising and third-party native advertising. Before we go into that, what did you think of the what did you think of this article and sort of the way he outlined well, it? Well, first what's interesting is is that Media Post here has a whole channel called Native Insider. So does that mean yeah, that every exactly. time they create right. an article they have to drink? I mean, that's what it, <laughs> that's what I want to right. know. Uh, yeah, so hey, Native is big because it has its own channel on Media Post. Um, what's interesting is especially the first two stack elements it's fine how they call it the stack it's kind of cute actually but the yeah. but the whole idea is first you know direct sponsor native advertising and that's where they bring up the new york times example where right. the new york times is going to create the content for you you will have some say in it but you don't get full say and it, it's costly to do that because it's basically you're paying a publishing agency to produce the content up to en- the, enough standards so it will get published on their platform and you have a little bit of say in that and of course, what was that big New York Times uh, shell one that came out? And then of course, you know, New York Times does is they pick their partners with it, but they put in huge yep. programs together. Um, then the stack number two, which I wanted to keep some time on because I think it's really important, is they give the example in direct brand native advertising. Well, oh, Intel has Intel IQ site, a site we both love, and they are, they're producing a ton of content. Well, they could take and sort of syndicate that content into the publisher's platform. This is, I think, more of your Forbes model, yep, where right. you know, SAP and a number of other players yeah. will buy They're doing that exactly. Yeah, will buy a section yeah. of the site. Now, the challenge here for both sides, actually, the brand side and the publisher side, is you need a review process, and that's what killed that's right. Forbes to start with because they didn't have a review process and they just let anybody from SAP create content. And this was what a couple of years ago, and boy, did it get out of hand where you had some really bad content. It really hurt Forbes. For a long time. So I think publishers listening, if you're going to do this, you need to have an editorial review board group process, whatever you want to call it, so that if clients are if you are taking client content, you need it needs to abide by your standards. Even if it's sponsored. I don't care what you market at. It's gotta be decent content. It's gotta be a valuable experience or it's gonna hurt you as the publisher. And I think long term I can make a case for it'll it'll hurt the brand as well. So yep. those are the, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the other ones are just, you know, third party native. You've got your you know, ad you networks know, you, in there, though, you know, that kind of stuff. So here's how about this for a prediction why, or just even a question. Why hasn't an agency like an Ogilvy or a, you know, or even bigger, right? So let's look at the Omnicoms, the publicists. Why haven't any of those agencies stepped up and bought a big magazine, right? Why hasn't anybody bought GigaOM? I, it baffles me why no one's bought, Giga, but basically taken the assets of GigaOM and done something cool with it. Because whoever does that is going to be like the white knight on a horse. Because GigaOM is this beloved property and is just sitting there. Why? Why haven't? Why hasn't that happened yet? That's a great question. I mean, you and I know of smaller situations, and I, particularly a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with um, a smaller content agency in the uh, pharmaceutical area, and they were they were yeah. talking about buying a, a small media property and, and start to build up assets so they could do some of these programs and and have some a little bit more freedom with it. I, I don't. I don't get it. I. I, well, I still don't get why brands aren't stepping up to the table fast enough. I, I, there's yeah. just such a huge opportunity in, in mergers and acquisitions around buy, you know, buying media sites. And actually, we'll have, I'll have a rant later, which will talk about that even some more. But I, I, yeah. I don't get why we're not moving fast. I mean, I get it, right? I get the politics of it. You're not used to it. It's a totally different model. Maybe they don't see enough value in it. But my goodness, what an opportunity right now for any size agency or uh, or brand out there to start filling in gaps with you don't you can actually honestly and ask the question should I build or buy right that's that's exactly it and I it, to me it's always you know when I hear of very large enterprises going wow we are all in on this content marketing thing we're going to invest we're going to get a team we're going to do this thing and we're going to spend the next four years building a platform it's like wow really there's so much out there that you could just get today and have an instant team 
and an instant brand and an instant audience. And yeah, you'd lose some of them. And yeah, you'd have to work. It's a different kind of investment model and all that kind of thing. But it just seems to me to be a huge opportunity. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, a, I'm confused as to why we haven't seen more of it yet. I think maybe we will. I don't know. You know, somebody uh, at our most recent event, event, somebody came up and said, oh, we're probably giving an idea we shouldn't be, but came up, came up to, <laughs> to us and said, hey, why doesn't CMI start to get into the buying and selling business and basically, you know, help brands identify and purchase the right sites? And I said, I think I'm just too tired for that. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole different oh model. God. Great opportunity. Yeah, so I guess if somebody yeah. wants it. There's there's an entrepreneurial idea for oh you if you feel like getting into goodness. that business. Yeah, well, we'd be happy the to. Real estate. It's basically the real estate business is what that is. Well, that's, that's, that's still how I explain to my aunt about what I do. I mean, we're, we're talking about on, we're in the online real estate business. That's really yeah. what we are. If you want to think about it, but anyways, around content. Well, speaking of on, well, speaking of online real estate, we have a brand new wonderful sponsor this dun, week. Da, da, da. Play the music. <laughs> Cue the music. Yes, our sponsor this week are the lovely, lovely folks at Wyden. They are lovely. Uh, Wyden has been a proud supporter of CMI and Content Marketing World uh, for for many years now. I mean, I think you and I have both spoken at their events, and now we are super happy to have them join us on the podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar with Wyden, they are a marketing technology company that specializes in digital asset management software, and so you can see the connection between that and content marketing. Oh, I got all kinds of digital assets all over the place. Uh, We got to put them somewhere so we can find them and scale. Uh, Hundreds of brands around the world trust their digital assets with Widen. And we have a wonderful new paper to share with you that we'd love for you to download called Great Visual Storytelling Takes a Village, authored by none other than Mr. Robert Rose. Oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> Raise the roof, man. That's oh unbelievable. Oh, my God. Did you just do the cheer? Thing? I did. Did you just do like an auditorium full of people? I did. I had a Dr. Right. Pepper right here that did it. No. <laughs> At a time where rich media experiences paved the future of content marketing, this piece explains how the four C's... You always do this. You're cute, but your four C's collaborate. You gotta have. You gotta have. An, I know. You gotta have an alliteration. Collaborate, right? customize, communicate, and connect. Very, very right. good. Were you drinking when you right. when you put this? Th- no, I'm just kidding. I was not. I was I was stone cold sober here. And <laughs> I thought you and, said you were stoned. Bro, this is this is yeah. this show's yeah, well, going downhill fast, yeah, folks. That's a whole other we're show. Into, anyways, great visual storytelling takes a village. You need to download this. Help the community of business manage of your business manage these digital assets. You can download it at bit.ly slash pnr widen. P-N-R-W-I-D-E-N. You can get that at the bit.ly address. Uh, please download it. Support our sponsors, but support it yeah. because it's a good piece of content. And, of course, written by the one and only oh Mr. Robert Rose. <laughs> I mean, it has to be fantastic. He doesn't put anything. I mean, it doesn't have his name on anything unless it's the very best of oh material, my gosh. right? Wow, you're really, really just It's getting deep in here. <laughs> yeah, it's just so deep. It's like... What's that exactly. smell? Uh, but thanks to oh our good goodness. friends at Wyden. Really, Absolutely. really appreciate Jake and the team it's, over there. Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, we really appreciate all the support. It is. A, it's so, I mean, really what it talks through is is that, you know, d- digital asset management has been around for ever, really. I mean, since the early 2000s. And, and this goes back to my own background in web content management, where web content management, enterprise con- content management, and digital asset management were sort of three keys in a big enterprise technology stack. And damn, digital asset management was always sort of based around the idea of governance. How do we govern these digital assets to make sure that the right people can use them and that we're using them in a legal, you know, authoritative way? And what has happened is, is that as we've evolved into this content marketing process, Really, the, the it's moved from a governance sort of model into much more of a collaborative yep. model. We need to be much faster and and agile, really, is the better word for it, with our digital assets. And so this idea of how we actually create new processes to become more collaborative with digital assets across the entirety of the business is really what that One of the more important it, categories it, yeah. of content marketing. I think oh, people, always, and, and, people yeah. continually talk about the production and the creation of content, yep. but they don't talk about the idea of how do I store my assets. I mean, how many 
companies have we talked to that they're working on the same projects in totally different platforms and they don't right. they can't find anything even when they do right. because they're using 18 different tools to get there so yeah that's anyways. right ways Anyway, so there you go. There you have it. Well, all right, folks, it is now time for your favorite part of the show, the time when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that is making us feel like the Badgers are going to feel when they win tonight um, or making us feel a little bit like the Dodgers are going to feel at the end of this season when they sort of give it up like they always somehow do. Um, Anyway, (laughs) moving on from that, um, I guess, let's see, who... You're doing this on marketing, so you're you're up first. Yeah, so I... I have the first sort of shot here. I have a very light rave here. Um, And my light rave um, is sort of coincides with the lovely debut of, I have to tell you, one of my favorite shows um, of all time, which is Mad Men. Um, And really the interesting thing to me is, so as you know, Joe, and and as most of you who have listened to this show for some time know, I am a student of history. I love history. And I think that, you know, it's funny when I'm doing uh, talks these days and workshops, you know, four years ago, I would say how many Mad Men fans are here and three quarters of the room, the hands would go up. And that number has decreasingly gotten smaller and smaller and smaller until literally this last conference. And I asked how many Mad Men fans were in the room and like four hands went up and it was like, wow, this is really seen a decrease over time. Now, I think the show has maintained its quality, but you know, I won't, that's not what this is about. To me, what it's about is that I think if you're a marketer today, you have to have watched, you need to watch this series because the history of advertising, the history of content, really the history of marketing is, especially the last 70 years of it, is built into this show. And there's an article that came out um, just uh, a couple of days ago, actually, in the New York Times. It's called Mad Men in the Era That Changed Advertising that really speaks to this. And I just loved the article, and so I wanted to make it my rave because it says what I want to say in a very elegant way. Um, uh, written by Emily Steele is her name, and it really talks through how Mad Men starts out – um, in you know literally in the 40s and then the 50s and then really spends a good amount of its time in the late 50s and into the 60s and is now as it starts to wrap up getting into the early 70s and we just really watched the birth of the Madison Avenue powerhouse advertising the things that we everything we talk about on this show has its roots in this time period everything from the giant holding companies like Omnicom and Publicis to what we're talking about with television and the rise of media, the way we're talking about branding and brand storytelling, the way we talk about positioning products and the four P's, all of that stuff is 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 encapsulated in this show. And I just love it a lot. And as it debuted last night, it's you know, it started off as it always does in a very odd way. Um, but I think it's just really great, and so I wanted to make it my rave this week. I'm going to have to. I mean, I've watched episodes, but I've not been a devotee. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to – you're basically telling me I've got to sit down and binge watch this whole thing. Yeah, it's great. It's just so good. I mean, it just talks – everything from – the the rise of women in the in the advertising space and the career woman in that space and the sexism that they faced to the way that products were positioned you know the most interesting stuff for me i mean the drama is of course great and uh, you know and and all of that but the really the stuff that sort of fascinates me the most is that they get so right the history of that time cuz they use real brands and real agencies of that of that time period and they talk through what was really going on during that time period. You know, there's a whole series of episodes about the Kodak carousel, and all. It's just, it's just really, really good. It's just, it's a really good for the student of history who's in the marketing, in their marketing career, to understand the context of what you live in today. Well, for my, thank you very much, sir. For my, um, I have a rant. Uh, I usually do a rave. I'm usually a positive guy. But uh, <laughs> but I've got a thanks to our our good friend of the show Carlos Abler for sending this on uh, actually this morning and I thought it was so good we'd put it on the show. This is from iMedia Connection and this article is entitled "How Advertising Ruined Publishing" and the author's name is Sean X, which. <laughs> 
which right away I was looking like X, really? Like no last name here. You didn't. I don't know. If, doesn't want to be. Now I understand after reading the article why. Haven't you? Didn't you? Didn't you get his new rap album? Didn't, yeah, exactly. The X Factor. X Factor. I'm sorry. Which was his follow up. His that was his sophomore effort from you know uh, Sean. Of the dead. Oh, very good. We could go on and yeah, on thank forever. You. No, I can oh, go on and on. Yeah, the hits anyway, keep coming. Moving along. So, um, <laughs> it's, it's entitled "How Advertising Ruined Publishing," and of course, you know, I love articles that just say there's only one way. It's all one thing. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Uh, so, bas- so, so I will sum up the article in this uh, quote that he gives: "Advertising is the cause of modern society's collapse." Oh dear. You, I'm, oh. I'm like, what? A what? Oh, boy. All right. I mean, no. that's just as all right. That's a that's a thesis. As our social a social yeah. media manager would say, that is cray cray, uh, <laughs> right there. So yeah, basically goes in and goes through the whole case about how in the glory days it was publishing and it was pure, and then advertising got involved, and then and then all kinds of horrible things happened to publishing, like Craigslist killed publishing, and social media has killed publishing, and Buzzfeed killed publishing, and native advertising has killed publishing. But really, all these things are because advertising has, has crushed publishing and we don't have this pure form of pub- and oh my goodness when did we ever have a that's pure form that's the thing of, it's th- like are, are we going so are we going back to the, like the the cuneiforms and the <laughs> this is the same story that we hear all the time in a different year like you could you could have said this 50 years ago and you could have said it 100 years ago and like even the the this whole <laughs> marketing that you talked about last week was it Pepsodent where you had Bob Hope that's right. yeah, talking yeah, about with Bob Hope, that yeah. was it was advertising. It was native advertising right there in front of us, sponsored content, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's been around for a long, long time. Like this is a new thing. Now, here's my take, and so I would. I'm on the exact polar opposite of this article because this person, Sean X, believes that this is the worst time we've ever had in publishing. And I believe that this is the golden age. We're seeing the golden age of publishing. We've never seen more innovation in publishing and publishing models. And we talk about it a lot where we've seen a number of publishers, if you want to just look at regular business media models, moving off of advertising into other revenue opportunities, whether those be those are donations, whether they're affiliate models, whether they're selling products and services, all types of different ways to monetize content. And and I'll leave you know I could go on forever with this whole thing, but the last <laughs> the last one. So Sean believes that the solution could be micropayments. The solution oh, no, to all this, this again. the solution this to the, the problems of society and publishing will all be solved with <laughs> micropayments. And of we course, had this in two thousand and two, that was it. Was like micropayments in Second Life, right? I'm like Mike. I was like, seriously, micropayments? Is that what we've come to? That micropayments is not going to happen. I'm sorry. It'll happen in some small sections, but people are not going to pay micropayments for the most part for their content. I don't think like they do like their music. But even if they do. It's not going to be a one size fits all solution. There's a lot of different ways to make money, and I think that's so. That's you know coming down off my soapbox here. I think that's the one thing that that if people, I want people to look a little bit differently at, like Sean. Say first, you got to get a little history. As you were saying, you're a big history buff. So am I. You have to look at the history of marketing and advertising to understand that this has always happened. We've always been at a point where we think that advertising is too and – we, and we get focused. The second point is we get focused too much on our content being monetized through advertising or paid content in some way. And we've got to realize that there's many other business models to go to market, let alone yeah. the one that you and I talk about all the time with content marketing is that you could actually have people buy more of your products and services if you're really good at publishing. So – there you go. That's exactly it, right? That's I mean, so it's change. It's not we didn't advertising didn't ruin publishing. Advertising. I'm a fan. I love advertising. I I'm I'm one of the few by the way that that you know, <laughs> I infuriate my wife because I actually I don't skip the ads. I actually like to watch well, ads. You, th- I've, that's I've a great so that's a, a great point. Did we talk about that last week? It was about the banner blindness one. Was that last week yeah, or the week yeah, before? Exactly right. Where yeah, we talked yeah, about yeah. it's not the banner, it's the lack of value in the spot. That's right. It's that there's that's no right. value to it. If there was a banner up there and it had huge value, there are people that would notice it <laughs> and start clicking on it. It's just that it's always for a product pitch and something not of use to people. So that's right. Anywho. That's exactly right. 
All right, folks, it is now time for our namesake for the show. It is This Old Marketing, and for this, we have a short one. I would love, if anybody's got any extra information, I found it a little difficult to find some in-depth information on this particular one, but I, it came out of um, uh, some work we did this last week at our executive forum um, with one of the attendees there um, from the lovely, wonderful company of Robert Half, um, and um, wanted to just mention it because it's a great example of content marketing at its finest. So um, for those of you who don't know, Robert Half is a personnel agency that was formed in 1948 um, by uh, the man himself, Robert Half. He was a uh, basically a staffing guy who was previously managing the hiring of accounting staff for a big textile manufacturing company. And basically, he looked and said, hey, I, there's a huge opportunity here. There's no firms that are really focused on just placing talent into companies. And so many credit him with being sort of the first headhunter out there, although that's something that seems to be a little bit um, in dispute. But if he wasn't, he was certainly one of the first. And the company has now grown to be really the war, the world's largest um, and uh, 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 in the accounting and financing staffing space. Um, they've got more than 400K uh, locations worldwide. They're a public company, all that kind of stuff. And the interesting thing to me here, and we're going all the way back um, into the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, that they've published this thing that they call the Robert Half um, Salary Guide. And now they have market-specific salary guides from everything from accounting, of course, where they started, to other things uh, such as uh, technology and services industries and all those sorts of things. The market salary guides are out there. Anybody can get them. You can get your own salary guide, and you can sort of see where the salaries are for your particular profession. And they've been doing it forever. They've become such an integral part of what's going on in sort of the zeitgeist of hiring people that actually they are used by the U.S. Department of Labor in preparation for their own forecasts of what salaries are going to be in any given profession for the following year. Um, In addition to creating this amazing salary guide, of course, Robert Half has also authored a number of books on industry. He's written a book called Make It Big in in Data Processing, How to Get a Better Job in This Crazy World. Um, And basically, they've really created all kinds of – I mean, they are so – they have such a core content focus here, everything from books like Job Hunting for Dummies and all these different kinds of books out there, in addition to this salary guide that they've produced forever, for decades um, out there, that has now become such an integral part of what's going on that the government actually uses it as its source um, of authoritative and thought leadership. And I thought that's just a great – I mean, if we can get to that kind of brass ring where our content is actually used by the government as the standard bearer of thought leadership for this particular space, we know we've sort of created something of value there. Um, and basically, that just thought it was a really great example of this old market. I, I agree with you on every point, except for the fact that if the government thinks you're creating quality <laughs> content, <laughs> well, I don't okay. know if that's... Okay. All right. You know, I mean, come... well... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, okay, maybe fair enough. I fair mean, point. the fact that Touché. they're yeah appropriating funds not to a whole new project <laughs> I, that I do like. But <laughs> anyway, so so what's it's... the what's the rest of your week like this week? The rest of my week is at home. I have a very quick trip to Palm Springs on Wednesday to go speak to um, a travel group there, um, which I've done every year now for the last few years, and it's been kind of a fun little thing. I just drive out to the desert and drive back. So other than that, I'm home. I'm working. I'm heads down working on a few things, um, writing a few client things and all that. So I have to say it's really nice to be home for the next couple of weeks before I head out on the road again. How about you? There you go. Well, first of all, if you haven't picked up Robert's book, Make sure you do oh, that experiences. Oh, it's a must gracious. read. Uh, you can you can read it right after you watch all of the Man Man episodes. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm I'm literally I'm off of this uh, podcast and I'm gonna go jump in the pool with the boys and I'm just gonna enjoy nice. enjoy some family time this week and and of course I've got a little bit of work I'm working on. You know we've got edits coming back on my book that's coming out at. At uh, Content Marketing World, Content Inc. Fantastic. So just Fantastic. working on that whole process, as you know, it's a lovely process. Oh, but yes. uh, but yeah, I'm I'm trying to take some downtime here with the family. So there you go. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. All right, folks, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, we love those story ideas. Tweet us up, won't you? Give us the cray cray tweets. Hashtag this old marketing. Um, and you know, 
You can always email us too at thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode number 73, we do hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All those links are on the show notes available at thisoldmarketing.com, which comes out on Saturday, folks. And we do hope you'll tune in next week where we're going to hear Joe say, terse, I can be terse. Once in flight school, I was laconic. Remember, folks, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. show is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.